I've shied away many times. I've made a treatment plan for a patient for a quadrant, but I, I will just work around that upper first molar, which got that behemoth amalgam, because I don't want to touch it. Any help you can give me. We should not be responsible for owning the clinical problems that a patient presents with. Welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast, the forward-thinking podcast for dental professionals. Join us as we discuss hot topics in dentistry, clinical tips, continuing education, and adding value to your life and career. With your host, Jazz Gulati. Most of my patients are above the age of 60 actually nowadays. And when I look into their mouths, I see these huge amalgam restorations. You know, like it's M-O-D-B. Uh, they've got very, very thin cusps. You can see the am amalgam shining through. You can see craze lines, crack lines, but they've been there for so many years. They've been there for two, three, sometimes even four decades. I mean, you, you look at these studies about longevity of amalgam and composite, and you know, my patients are, uh, the heavy metal generation patients are a living testament to longevity of amalgam. However, when things go wrong, they can go catastrophically wrong. Like remember when you find secondary caries around amalgam, it can be a huge, huge mess. And of course, we know that in time, cusps can fracture around amalgams. And that's like the most common emergency we find, which is when someone just broken off a cusp and lo and behold, there's a huge amalgam left behind. So when should you look at an amalgam and say, you know what, I'm gonna decide now is a good time to crown this tooth or now is a good time to remove this amalgam because I worry about secondary caries or I worry about micro leakage. Because if they've been like this for 30 years, 40 years, and I can't really justify enough a good reason to drill into it, then why am I drilling into it, okay? These are kind of debates that I have with myself. So to help answer this, as part of this Back to Basics series for August, I've got Dr. Andrew Chandrapal from the UK, who is just a, such a gifted clinician. He's uh, well known throughout the world, actually. And I think he's done a really good job of covering this basics of, you know, when do I need to remove this stained composite? Like, is that staining around a margin? How can we prevent it? But then when it happens, do, do we need to actually drill into it or not? So we covered that kind of theme, but also we talk about that patient who's got uh, uh, these amalgams everywhere, these flat amalgams that they've accumulated over the time and, and how we need to manage those patients. But an interesting thing that Dr. Andrew Chandrapal discussed, which I'm gonna share with you now as like a teaser for the rest of the episode is these patients who have a flat amalgam, like, you know, they go from having beautiful cuspal inclines to having this um, flat amalgam thumbed inside the cavity, right? And, and then they have another one and then they have another one then they have another one. Eventually, because you're losing the anatomy and the dentist, obviously, because it's flat, it's very unlikely that that restoration is finely tuned into the occlusion. So what you get is that every time a restoration is placed, it's out of the occlusion, right? So slowly, but slowly, but slowly, but surely, you're losing occlusal vertical dimension. Just imagine all your molars getting these flat amalgams and eventually uh, each one is out of occlusion and eventually you lose vertical dimension. And it's interesting how Andrew Chandrapal, who's been very influenced by John Coyce, talks about um, this constricted envelope that can form. Now, if you don't understand what that means, don't worry. Uh, Dr. Andrew Chandrapal will cover that. So yes, this is back to basics theories, but some of it does get a little bit into uh, the bigger picture, which is good. We need to appreciate, we need to look beyond the single 
single tooth and appreciate the bigger picture. So, uh, so much to look forward to in the rest of this episode. I hope you stick around also for the rest of August for the Back to Basic series. Uh, I'm hoping like, if you're watching on YouTube or Dental Tubules or wherever, I hope you like my, my new setup. I'm now standing, no longer seated. I've got my uh, biggest green screen mounted behind me, so I hope it's uh, coming out okay. For those of you listening, I appreciate you while you're running, jogging, chopping onions or gardening, whatever you're doing right now. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you're a new listener to Petrusa Dental Podcast, oh my gosh, welcome. Thank you so much for, for joining us uh, and, and stick around, check out some of the older episodes. Uh, and just before we join the, the main meat and potatoes of the episode, I've got my Petrusive Dental Pearl for you. So uh, Raghav Munjal recently on the Petrusive Dental Community Facebook group. That's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Petrusive. Uh, he um, asked an interesting question. He said, Jazz, you posted a while ago on Instagram about uh, color coding your burrs or dentists that buy their, or associates that buy their own equipment and how to make sure it doesn't keep getting lost. Like that's a huge bugbear of mine. You know, you spend your hard earned money on buying this equipment or these burrs or this you know, composite brush or whatever, or modeling resin, right? And then it gets lost, misplaced, broken, whatever. And it's really, you know, it's really sad because there, there are these associates who are buying their own equipment, they're, they're growing, but they're few and far between. I think it's a great thing to be able to buy your own stuff sometimes to elevate your dentistry uh, and then hopefully find a principal that appreciates you enough to buy you the stuff that you want to use. But anyway, when you do, when you are that associate and you are buying that stuff, one way I found to make sure that things don't keep getting lost is to color code that equipment. Now, obviously you can't color code your mirrors because that'd be difficult, but you can color code the cassettes that they go into. Or let's talk about, I've got like this little saw, this interproximal saw. Is if I've ever bonded composite uh, on the adjacent teeth together, so I've stuck the two teeth together, I will use like this little saw. That itself could be a protrusive dental pearl actually. But anyway, use this saw. But that little saw has got a handle, which I've got like this yellow and green tape. So what I'll do is if you go to protrusive.co.uk and if you click on this episode, um, then you will, I'll put a link there to the Instagram live I did showing you exactly the tape that my nurse uses. So I know that if something is color coded orange and green, and everyone knows that, that belongs to me, okay? So it always comes back to my surgery. Uh, I've got some hand pieces that are color-coded uh, orange and green, so I know that, hey, these are Jazz's hand pieces, they're gonna go back to him. And when it comes to burrs, which is the, the, the most annoying thing, the easiest thing to lose is burrs, right? So what I did, I bought my own burr blocks from like eBay or something, right? And they're, color, they're colorful, but I also color code them with the green and orange banding, which I, again, like I said, if you check out the website, I'll show you exactly where I get that from. Um, and then the burr blocks themselves are color coded. So any burrs I put in um, will always come back because they're part of that block. And you take a photo of that block. So the decon nurse knows what which burrs are supposed to be inside that block. So essentially the pearl is to start getting a little bit savvy with your equipment, look after your equipment. And part of that is actually color coding it, but also telling your team that, hey, this stuff is super important because it belongs to you. So hope you, hopefully we can elaborate more on the website when you check out the full uh, Instagram live I did some months ago. Raggy, thanks so much for asking that question on the Protrusive Dental community. And let's finally join Andrew Chandrapal on what's a very interesting episode about the very fundamental question of when should I drill this amalgam? Andrew Chandrapal, welcome to the Protrusive Dental podcast, my friend. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks, Jazz. Thanks for having me on here. It is amazing to have you on. Finally, uh, it's something that people have been asking for. Mohammed Sharjil asked for you. Loads of the others of the Petrusarati have asked for you because obviously we've been infected by your enthusiasm in the past. Uh, myself, I first saw you lecture at the BACD. You did a little a workshop with a microscope and you were teaching us how to do these beautiful lifelike uh, composites. Uh, and I saw you again lecture again. This was like a one of those evening things in, in the BACD again. This was at the BDA on behalf of the BACD. And honestly, your work is 
always inspiring. Uh, so it's great to actually have you on to, to really, I'm going to try and suck as much knowledge out of you and share it with everyone as possible today. Yeah, go for it. Go for it. I mean, uh, uh, it's very complimentary what you have to say. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, it, it's one of those um, things that uh, that I'm very lucky to be in the position that I'm in. I'm, I'm thankful to to people who, who, who see, you know, what, what I can uh, to what I can offer to the to the profession and the, those that believe in me. So uh, you know, I'm privileged to be here. And to just give us a little bit about your your journey, because I think you qualified from Birmingham, right? Yeah, I'm a Brummie graduate. I qualified um, when 2001. Uh, I took a year out um, and and concentrated on trying to focus what I did as an undergrad uh, uh, doing music and stuff like that because I was a bit of a performer back in the day um, and yeah so I qualified in 2001 uh, I worked uh, in West Bromwich in uh, in the black country um, for a couple of years developed the accent so I thought it would be time to leave uh, moved down to Oxford <laughs> to mix practice there and then uh, and then joined a, a pretty um, a pretty well-known and, and high-end private practice in Banbury um, and then and then basically moved to Buckinghamshire, which is where I have been ever since. And I've been there for 16 years now. So I spend my time between there um, uh, and teaching as I do all over the place. Um, and then also in specialist practice in central London now. Who inspires you? Who inspires Andy? Oh, that's a good one. So uh, I, I guess there's there's kind of uh, mind, body, soul inspiration. So I, I guess my first inspiration, I, I, I can't lie, it, it's got to be my dad. Um, who's not with us anymore, but he, he was a massive inspiration to me. We're quite alike, uh, both grafters, uh, both try and do our best to be people persons, as, as it were. Um, uh, the, the next one is uh, a guy who taught me as an undergrad. Uh, his name is John Davenport, an amazing guy. And he, he actually, one of the first things he said to me, he said, Andy, you want to make sure that whatever you do professionally, because I can see that you're quite focused on your profession, always have a sideline, always make sure you do some stuff on the side to give you complete separation from dentistry. Otherwise, it will have this ability to kind of suck you in a little bit. And um, and with that, um, th there's a, a local park in Birmingham that I was going through that weekend and I saw him. And bear in mind, John Davenport at that time was probably in his mid-60s. Um, and he, uh, I saw him rollerblading, just like rollerblading across the park. I'm like, <laughs> wow, this guy's for real. Uh, so yeah, so he he was probably a mind, body, soul mentor. And then clinically, I, I guess um, the first time I met Pascal Manier was 2006, and he changed the way I performed dentistry. Um, he's been uh, massively influential for many, many um, dentists, and, and I know you know him and know of him well. Um, and and then John Coyce, um, who's been my mentor uh, in, in sort of restorative dentistry, I suppose, since about 2008. You've been to Seattle a few times to, to see him uh, the COIS program? I have. I'm, I'm a graduate of the COIS um, Centre, having done all nine modules, um, and, and I teach the principles on uh, some of my courses. So I, I, I fully buy into his approach. It's not a philosophy. So it's not like, oh, yeah, you know, I do things the Panky or the Dawson way or anything like that. It's, it's really based on metric science. Um, and he, he, he manages to weed out all the rubbish and, and keep the good stuff within the science over the last 50 years. And so I, I love that philosophy. And so his, his camp of theory and thought is always changing and modifying. So um, I, I find that makes sense in my little head. So um, I love that. Um, and then finally, Didier Dietschy is, is, is a great friend and mentor in, uh, in Geneva. Um, he, he has supported me uh, throughout uh, my career. Uh, to this point and um, is a wonderful clinician and an even better person and um, is that type of person that I strive to to try and base myself on professionally 
um, and, uh, you know, and, and uh, have the integrity that he does. So those are my people. You have some amazing mentors and friends. Wow, that is so inspirational. Um, that is just so good. I love it. Well, today we're going to be talking a little bit about um, going back to basics. So August is all about back to basics. And I could have picked anything because I know you do teaching on all varieties uh, within dentistry, a beautiful uh, composite restorations, the management of toothware and everything in between and uh, and wide of that. But the, the, the main thing that actually, actually Mohammed Sharjil, um, who, who just specifically, I don't know why he, he thought of you, but he said, look, I want to learn this topic and I want to learn it specifically from Andrew Chandrapal. I said, okay, go, what, what is it? And he said, I want to learn about the management of our day-to-day patients whom, like my patient base is um, average patients about 60 years old plus, and they have these huge amalgams, right? And he just wants to hear from you. And he wants me to bring you on and interview you and ask you questions about how do you manage these big restorations and, and, and when they have subjectively failed? Because we see, we do see a lot on social media and we're, we're, we're in a blessed position uh, as young dentists who want to learn that nowadays you couldn't do this maybe 10 years ago where you can just go on and look and observe and learn from full protocol cases. And there's so much to learn, but there's also something you appreciate that there's some things that you would do or some things you, you wouldn't do, other clinicians are doing or not doing. So the classic example is, you know, that restoration that you would have never have touched or replaced and other dentists are replacing. That's it, the classic thing. So essentially, though, 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 I'm beating around the bush. But I'm, well, the first crux of the question I'm getting to uh, for, for you, Andy, is these patients with these large restorations, when do you classify them as failed? And when do you have that? What's going through your mind when you're discussing about, okay, it, has it, uh, near the end of the restorative cycle. Okay, great. Great question. Um, thank you, Mohammed. Um, uh, I think, let, let's take a step back from this, Jazz, for a moment. <clears throat> and and if you look at the whole sort of dentition in a, in a single individual for a moment, um, and you look at someone who's in the age group that you said, that is typical for my kind of age group in general practice as well, um, you're looking at someone that typically has gone through a restorative cycle of dentistry that means that there was perhaps a little bit more heavy handedness for intervention in the eras that have gone um, gone before us. So let's, let's look at perhaps the 70s, the 80s or maybe the early 90s. Typically, these people will pretty be pretty heavily restored. And um, to give testament to the practitioners of that time, they were doing amalgam restorations, bonded or pinned, that I could never do. I have no idea. Mm how these massive MODL amalgam restorations have stayed in place for 20 <laughs> plus years because I, I simply could not do that. Um, and so th there is a degree of kudos to, um, to, to, to practitioners before we start to then change the rhetoric a little bit. But what I will say is that when you have a patient that has a mouthful of these, there is a cycle that's gone before them. And this sort of cyclic fatigue um, to me is the bigger picture. So if we go back to Edwina Kidd's uh, publications uh, and her textbook, in fact, she was then making reference to the fact that amalgam restoration that is le uh, leached or ditched to the degree of perhaps 0.5 of a millimetre or more should be then be replaced because you're going to get that sort of creep um, of, of material over time, which is going to then plaque, trap and, and bacteria and et cetera, et cetera. So that's one indication, but that's fairly historical. What I'll say is this. Um, if I'm looking at a large restoration that's got facet marks <clears throat> in it or, or, or has got a, a wide occlusal footprint, as I call it. You know, so in other words, something that shows you that that occlusal um, contact <clears throat> is a wide and flat one. 
then the potential for that to be adding, especially when you have multiple restorations of that nature, uh, the potential for having loss of posterior guidance, loss of point contacts, loss of um, posterior bilateral simultaneous contacts is quite high. And what that will do... As in, what you mean is uh, if you intervene in that scenario, then the risk is high. Well, what I'm saying is that if the, the risk is high if we let the, some of these things go. So the point is of intervening on a single restoration like that um, is that you have to then conform to that occlusal scheme. And the difficulty with that is that you're adding to the problem. So this kind of cyclic restoration cycle uh, means that every time a restoration like that wears or every time a restoration is flattened in that sort of way, you lose a little bit of vertical dimension. And that cyclic, um, that cyclical phase means that you lose vertical and then you increase anterior guidance and increase anterior contact. In other words, get to a point of anterior constrictions being a, a much higher risk than they would usually be. And that in turn might give you anterior uh, wear as well as the posterior wear that you see. Are you enjoying the Protrusive Dental Podcast? Well, allow me to deliver you even more value. You can now download the iOS or Play Store app for free. Just search Protrusive on your app platform. Now, if you're a true Protrusive and you want to support the podcast, you want to claim CPD for all the listening and watching that you do, you want to get access to exclusive clinical walkthrough videos to make dentistry tangible, as well as a premium newsletter, access to the Protrusive Vault, and the ability to download all the clinical videos and podcast videos so you can view them offline later, you can get all of that for less than 15 tax-deductible dollars per month. So what are you waiting for? Download the Protrusive app now on iOS or Android for absolutely nothing. We've worked so hard on this Protrusive team and I know you're just going to love it. Now back to the main episode. So in short, I'm sorry I've gone around the houses on this, but my indications for replacing something like this is if I start to see fatigue, early fatigue of a, of a restoration, singular or multiple, then I'll have a look, I'll step back and have a look at the dynamic and the static occlusion as a whole. If I'm suspicious that we've had a loss of vertical as a consequence of that, um, I will keep a watch on that perhaps for six months. And I'll say to the patient, keep an eye on this. Let's take a scan of your teeth. Let's take a photo, um, photos of your teeth, or let's take silicon indices. And then let's see if this problem is dynamic. In other words, let's see if the tooth wear is increasing and then decide, make a pathway to then replace your worn and flattened restorations. Now, whether or not that's amalgam, whether or not that's um, composite, the principle is the same. Because whenever, whenever you're replacing a single restoration, you are having to conform. That, that's the first thing. I hope that makes sense. It, it does. And I'm just going to probe you further on that. But anyway, well, I'm going to let you finish the, the two, three points that you're saying, because I'm really fascinated by this. And I, I love the angle we're taking here. But I have got some things to try and clarify for the listeners about the, the decision-making tree. But please do carry on. So if you're, like you said, you might monitor it and see if there's a dynamically deteriorating situation. Yeah. The, the second thing is that if I see um, a, restora um, a restoration within a dentition that does show wear or high occlusal contacts or quite flat, heavy occlusal contacts, I'm always going to be suspicious of, um, of, uh, of fractures within the actual coronal tooth tissue itself. And one of the main things that I am worried about with amalgams that have been present for a long time is what Cameron stated in 1964. And that was that there is a massive um, concurrence of fractures, sub-restoration, when you remove amalgam restorations. And that's because the amalgam restoration in itself is harder than the tooth substrate by which you put it into. And so that cyclic fatigue that you get on amalgam restorations, the casualty is not the amalgam often, it's the tooth. And so when you unearth these, seeing internal uh, fractures, floor of the cavity fractures, uh, for me, 
uh, a real commonality. And sometimes that can be a, a, a problem that if we leave it for too long, you're then dealing with problems that could potentially be terminal for the tooth. But how can you, you know, obviously we, we can't see through the restoration. I mean, um, yeah, it's very common. Uh, you and I both see, we remove these big amalgams and we uh, see this massive crack line and we take the obligatory photo so we can explain to the patient afterwards our findings in case it, it does go necrotic or needs a root canal. But yes, that's one factor. But then how do you, how can you predict that? Or is it just a, a high percentage chance and you go with that in mind? Well, I think if we rely on percentage chance or probability, I think that we're on shaky ground. I think that that's probably, you know, because I've got an inkling, can we do this? I'm not sure that's going to fly. Um, so actually what I do is try, I try and look at the evidence over a period of time. I'm lucky I've been in the same practice for many years. And so if I'm noting that tooth wear or tooth surface loss is progressive, for example, or this patient presents with lingual or buccal tori, or they have masseter hypertrophy, as an example. I'm thinking, okay, we're building a case for someone who's higher risk. And what we're trying to do here is do a risk assessment on every single patient that comes our way. We're trying to be predictable in terms of that treatment modality so that we don't have a crystal ball, but we can look at the risk factors that would associate with a risk to be higher in one individual than another. And that in itself might legitimize the cause for this individual requiring, requiring their amalgam or restoration to be removed, plus a little bit of fatigue that we see on the individual tooth versus another one that doesn't show any form of dynamic um, tooth surface loss, um, shows normal muscle tone um, and, and this type of thing. So there are differences, but you've got to step back from it a little bit and look at the evidence that stands before you. So the, the, the term that I was um, going to point to on my first point, just so you know, Jazz, is it's called a combination syndrome. And combination syndrome is that thing where basically you've got a heavily restored patient who's had, you know, most of their posterior dentition treated um, directly most of the time or indirectly on some of the time. And over that period of time, the tooth is fatigued, the restorations are fatigued, and we've had that general loss of vertical over that period of time. So every time you do an amalgam restoration or a direct composite restoration, you know what it's like. If you leave it, if you sculpt it in the way that you think or believe is morphologically correct, the patient will be like, you know what, I, I just can't bring my teeth together on that one side. Um, yeah, it feels mm -hmm. a bit odd. So what do you do? You, you go in and you remove or you, you adjust as you need to. And then, oh, yeah, yeah, no, that feels better. But what you've done right there is conformed or even um, you've even infra occluded the restoration and you're contributing to that combination syndrome. So mm -hmm. done over a period of time repeatedly, what that does is further reduces your vertical dimension. And, and mm -hmm. that to me is one of the main rationales as to why a lot of the age older restorations that are happen to be an amalgam need to be replaced but you've got to look for the risk size. So you've got to stand back and look at the, and risk assess that individual patient. Now, the, the um, going back to the, um, the third point, it, it's a bit more obvious. If I start to see um, signs of fractures um, underneath the amalgam restoration, so a lot of the time on premolars, as an example, you might see palatal wall or buccal wall hairline fractures. Um, some of the time on class two restorations that have amalgam restoration, particularly upper fours, um, you, you can tend to see these little hairline cracks in between the buccal cusp and the floor of the cavity. So mm -hmm. these types of things might be rationales as to why I, I'd be interventionist and, and, and choose to suggest to a patient that you'd remove the amalgam restoration and perhaps then choose to onlay the cusps with your direct composite. 
after that. Th th that's a clear one to, to see and that's a clear one to show the patient as well. One thing I'm going to come back to again in the first time is that it's a much bigger picture issue to convey to a patient, let alone another dentist as well, which, you know, we, we tend to uh, uh, think tooth by tooth, single tooth dentistry, you know, you replace these restorations. So when you're having this kind of conversation in the future about the flat, how flat the tooth is, the functional risk, and being able to convey that to a patient and, and at a timely manner be able to um, rehabilitate them to a, an improved vertical dentistry mentioned uh, less constriction anteriorly. So for those maybe dental students listening, uh, if, you, if you don't mind clarifying exactly what you mean by uh, the re restricted anterior restriction or constriction even. So the idea is that we can introduce interferences both posteriorly and anteriorly. Now we know when we learn um, uh, about occlusion at an undergraduate level, we're taught uh, about the fact that posterior contacts can often be a working side interference or a non-working side interference. And that is often uh, occurring when you excurse. And so as a patient ruminates or masticates their food, as an example, or even protrudes, if you introduce an interference on, on the posterior teeth, depending on the direction of where the mandible moves, you will introduce a working side or a non-working side interference. Now, as a consequence of that, this is where these working side interferences or non-working side interferences need to be removed, adjusted, or modified appropriately. Now, that can be done subtractively or additively. Now, often the theory stops there. But in fact, when we're talking about interferences, the interferences can also be anterior. So if you can imagine the path of closure and um, the path of elevation of the mandible as it comes into full closure, into full maximum intercuspation. The issue sometimes is that you can have, and this is well proven throughout science, is that you can have a situation where the mandible elevates into position, has a micro uh, contact onto the incisor ledge of the upper incisor teeth and then shifts back as the mandible shifts. And what you get there is a situation where you can get localized um, incisor edge wear or palatal um, incisor edge wear of the uppers and label incisor edge wear of the lowers. And if you think of a class two div two type situation where you have kind of frictional wear caused by teeth that are retroclined, if the mandible actually, if the path of closure of the mandible, which is controlled by the CNS, and that's well proven equally, apart from trauma or pathology. If that closure means that your anterior teeth interfere on that path of closure, then you're going to have an anterior interference. And effectively, the mandible is going to be shunted posteriorly distally. And that is known as a constricted envelope of function, because what you are doing is you are constricting the envelope of function, which is the methodology of how the the mandible elevates into its home position, as we call it. Definitely can hear the coice uh, running through your veins, uh, Andy. Uh, I love it. Um, I mean, here, here's an interesting um, debate I'm going to throw with you that uh, there are some uh, some of my mentors and friends who actually, um, I wouldn't say they don't, they don't believe in it, but they see it in a different way. Let's just talk about that. So there is this um, you know, restriction, let's say anteriorly, or a frictional chewing pattern, as is also referred to, uh, which is, uh, am, I, am I embarking up the right, right, right tree? That is the same, yep. same sort of philosophy. Yeah. Yep. Now, some people say that actually when we're, we're, we're chewing and we're that the teeth generally do not slide, they don't make that contact. And then the way that uh, some other people rationalize that um, accelerated wear in a class two div two is rather than it being a constricted envelope of function, they say it's a constricted 
envelope of power function, i.e. when that patient does power function, because of that sort of setup that they have, all the force is transmitted and accelerates, uh, accelerates the wear anteriorly. Do you have anything in the literature or uh, from what we know that, that could counter um, th that argument uh, in a way? Or is this something that we still uh, aren't, aren't sure about? So from what I have learned and from, from my mentors, the, the whole definition of parafunction kind of differs. And there is a differentiation of parafunction versus a, a, a constricted envelope of function or a frictional chewing pattern. A frictional chewing pattern is not known to necessarily be a parafunctional movement. Parafunctional movements are tending to be classified in my, in my eyes as non-functional movements. And that's the massive difference between those two forms of, of wear. <clears throat> and so um, the, the issue, and if, let me give you another example. Um, when uh, orthodontics uh, back in the day, I, I for one, uh, I, I was a class two div one case and I had my upper pores removed. What you end up doing as a consequence of that is retracting in the upper anterior labial segment. But often what you can end up doing is, is bringing the upper and lower anterior teeth to a minimal or tenuous overjet. And when you have a tenuous overjet, the problem being is that you cannot change the arc of closure as that mandible elevates into position. There are only three determinants of that arc of closure. There's the CNS uh, or your skeletal uh, neuromuscular uh, system. There's pathology or there's trauma. And so as a consequence of that, that doesn't necessarily change. And so if the teeth effectively get into that position or they interfere into that arc of closure, that is an anterior interference. Now, the problem being is that if we are in a situation where our jaw or rather more our TMJ can ascertain a position of neutrality within the condyle when our teeth are discluded. So as we are moving our jaws uh, and not in contact, if they're in that position of neutrality, all of a sudden that position of neutrality is then in discord when the teeth meet. And when the anterior teeth meet, you are then shunted. And that, that therein causes or, or causes the incisor ledge tooth wear that we're talking about. It's a phenomenon that, you know, it has, has taken, I, I guess, a lot of credence, a lot of belief, I suppose, in the more recent years. But actually, when you look back in the literature, it's been there for many, many years. Morton Amsterdam in the 60s was talking about this as an example. Pete Dawson was talking about this for, for many, many years as an example. And so I, I guess that you can create um, an anterior constricted envelope of function by the sheer fact that vertical height can reduce, thereby bringing effectively your anterior teeth closer together. It's the same reason why when we open our vertical height, the mandible postures distally. It's the same reason. So it makes sense that when you lose vertical, the mandible has the ability to posture anteriorly rather than distally when you open mm -hmm. it. That makes sense. Brilliant. And I think that does help to, to, to clarify those listening who've never come across this term. Uh, that's great. Now, you've said the three points so far. Was there a fourth one or can I go to the next question? No, no, that's that, that's it. That's my rationale, really. Perfect. And I, and I love that so much. And I want to just uh, be able to um, jump to the next common scenario that you might see. So I think you've gone way over and above what I was expecting. I, I love that. And you really, and I'm so glad you converted what is a, a single, you know, it can be interpreted as a single tooth question, but you really, uh, you know, help to everyone to explain that actually you've got to take a step back and look at the chewing system, uh, look at the, the functional risks. So all these great things you've introduced uh, into this dilemma is, is fantastic. The next question, which maybe is a bit more um, single tooth based, is that when we see 
posterior composites and they have the yellow brown stain okay that dreaded stain that you see uh, at the margin um a how can we prevent that any protocols uh, and and b uh, when these restorations have been there for some time and there's no radiographic evidence of secondary caries is that in itself a a reason to intervene Great question. So <clears throat> I think in terms of what, what we're really looking at is marginal microleakage. So when you start to get a breakdown of the margin of your composite restoration, we are getting um, <clears throat> a reduction in the hybrid layer effectively in the adhesion between that, that thin part of your restoration and the underlying tooth. And so there are a couple of things that are anecdotal. There's a couple of things that are scientific that I can suggest. The first thing I think I will say is that anecdotally is that rubber dam is such an important part of this isolation in some way, shape or form to enable the tooth substrate when it's prepped to not get hydrated, to allow the tongue not to contact the, you know, the cusp tips, let's say, of your of your tooth prior to restoration is such an important thing. And I think if you're looking at a lower six or a lower seven, and you're talking about exactly what you're talking about there, which is marginal breakdown. The chances of that being the case are, are slightly greater if you're not going to be using any rubber dam isolation. That's the first thing. That said, there is no evidence in the, in the literature that would support the use of rubber dam. Um, and so uh, it's such a subjective thing. So it's all anecdotal, but um, there are ways to then apply rubber dam that are simple, that are predictable, that are quick. Um, it's just a case of learning it as we go along um, and with confidence, of course. So the second thing I would say is that your prep design is also quite important. Just like something like Emacs as an indirect restoration, composite doesn't really like sharp edges. So you need to make sure that you've got beveled edges or that you've got soft um, edges so that when you have a finish point, it's not necessarily just a butt joint. Um, equally, if you're sort of overlaying cusps, you need to make sure that that cusp tip on the internal line angle isn't sharp. It's not a butt joint. It needs to be rounded. So things like that will make a big difference. Any before you just jump on to the next one, uh, just a, a little tip that you can give us. Uh, uh, when you're cutting your cavities, uh, removing caries, uh, is there a special burr that you use to try and create that uh, sort of bevel or the, the, the sort of um, the correct uh, emergence out into the um, out into the cavity from the proximal surface? Sure. So um, I, I'm old school. And so I would still tend to use steel rose heads to remove my caries um, uh, where, where I can proximally. I sometimes like to finish the proximal boxes with um, sonic hand pieces. NSK do a great sonic hand piece. Um, and, uh, and the proximal attachments that go with them are really great for removing a prismatic enamel for ensuring that you don't harm the, uh, the adjacent proximal wall as well. So we also like using those, but I tend to use rose heads more than anything. I use them with water. Um, so they could be ceramic or they could be steel, but I tend to just go for steel because. What about for, for beveling that enamel? So you're not ending up with a, a butt join of the composite at the, at the proximal. So when it comes to um, the actual prep of that, of that particular part, I tend to stick with the 20 micron red band composite finishing burrs. Uh, and in particular, I, I quite like the, the rugby ball uh, pear shaped um, burr. I tend to sort of try to um, eat, flatten that out and then have my hand piece sort of curve over a, a smidgen so that you've got the bulbosity of that rugby ball that then sort of makes a, a concavity at that point. So I, I quite like doing that. I have no hesitation with overlaying cusp tips either. Um, Didier Ditch, he did um, some research that would suggest that posteriorly, your composite needs to be at least one millimetre in thickness um, on, on an occlusal layer. So as a consequence of that, if you're going to overlay your cusp tips, you do need to take that down by at least a millimeter um, in an effort to then overlay and get strength of your composite material. So together with the red band 20 micron uh, finishing burr 
and at least one millimeter reduction on the cusp tip, I'm quite comfortable doing that. Brilliant. And uh, just le leading on from that, at what point do you um, numerically or otherwise, are you going to decide to to cap that cusp or not? So at what's your cutoff point? Do you think, okay, now this cusp is thin enough um, that I'm going to now remove a little bit to allow one millimeter of composite to, to cap that cusp? Great question. So I'm going to answer that and I'm going to go back to the, the last um, point that I was going to raise on your first question. Um, so the answer to that is I look at um, Pascal Manier's research from 2009. Um, he did some uh, finite element analyses on different types of posterior cavities. I'm not sure you're probably aware of this particular piece of research. And uh, and, and surprise, surprise, what he, he figured out is that the weakest um, uh, or the most high stress of, of type of cavity would be the MOD. And now that stands to reason because, of course, what you've got is a channel going straight through the middle of the tooth. And then you've got these unsupported buccal and lingual walls. Um, so he supported, um, obviously, the motion to then say, OK, well, if you don't have to do an MOD and if you don't get rid of that um, middle part of the isthmus, then, then don't. And then sort of, you know, get, get rid of your GB black kind of classification and just do what you need to and then adhere to that, which makes perfect sense. Moving on from that, however, is that what makes me decide whether or not I cover the cusp tips or not is whether the distance between my cusp tips and the width of my isthmus that's been created is um, the, the ratio between those two distances. So if the, if the distance between my isthmus um, that I prepped is over half the distance between my cusp tips, then I will overlay the cusps, if that makes sense. If I'm less than that, then I'm quite happy to not overlay the cusp because I know that the thickness of my buccal or lingual proportions are going to be decent. The only time that that changes is if we're diverted onto one side more than the other. And in which case, if I've got a buccal wall that's real thin, but my isthmus is still thin, I'm going to then still overlay that particular cusp tip because it's very thin indeed. That's the only exception. But I will rely on the science to guide me there. Brilliant. I knew you were going to be coming armed with references and stuff. And I'll try and put as many of these on for the Protrusive Dental Community Facebook group as well. So people can can geek out. And you were going to, so you talk about isolation uh, and you're talking about the, the correct cavity form. Uh, and that led nicely to all these accessory questions. And I think there was one more point you were going to raise, right, in terms of staining. That's correct. And the other way and um, the other thing that we've got to look at is the quality of the bonding that we get. Um, and one of the main things that we often miss out on is that we think that because the cusp tip is a relatively accessible area in terms of cleaning and hygiene, we think that that's clean. And the difference is actually if you were to use something like GC and triplaque paste to then highlight your biofilm or some of the plaque, you'd be quite surprised with how much plaque indeed um, builds up. And so actually what I tend to do is use particle abrasion. Particle abrasion is so, so important in making sure that your cavities is disinfected or is at least the, 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 the biofilm has been removed as best as possible. And I'll overlay that onto the onto the sides, external sides of the buccal and lingual cusps equally, so that when I do perform either a cuspal overlay or I have a finishing point of my composite resin, I know that that's free of biofilm. The same uh, principle will, will, will apply from like a class five restoration. They look clean. But to the naked eye, they would look clean. But you've got to make sure that you sandblast those areas to make sure you can remove that biofilm. And, and I found that since I've been using that, and that's been about 10 years now, um, that has revolutionized the level of marginal leakage that I then get on the periphery of my composite restorations.
I was having a chat with Marcus Blatz and he was just coming out with all these like, you know, evidences for and against uh, aerobrasion. And by against aerobrasion, I mean that there's the, the lack of uh, efficacy for it. But there's one in terms of bond strength, that is. Uh, how much does it really improve your bond strength? And there's some papers for and some papers against. But there's one thing that cannot be denied and that's the removal of biofilm, which is why I will routinely use it. And I, I completely agree with you uh, that, that you know once you scale and then you actually uh, disclose, you will still find plaque there. But only after you use the aerobrasion, unit, can you find that you've got a truly clean surface that is ready for bonding? And uh, recently, David Jadole came on the podcast and he just uh, blew us away about the two most important things about bonding being clean and rough. So I'm, I'm glad you're echoing those, uh, those same sentiments. So talk about those um, three main areas of how to prevent having that staining and you know, how aerobrasion has revolutionized that. So now let's come to the fact that, okay, at what point are you going to see these stained composites? Probably not yours, probably from your predecessor. And now decide, okay, now I'm going to intervene because of this staining or, or this microleakage. So that's a tricky one. And I think that um, there is so much subjectivity that builds into whether or not to decide to intervene because of marginal staining. And it may well be um, that we have to then communicate effectively with our patients when we do this, because actually it may well be that certain situations don't look terribly complicated or, or, or infiltrated with caries, but in fact, when you open them up, they are rife. Um, and it may well be for a host of different reasons. It may well be because the, the bonding protocol was either old, not so good, perhaps the quality of the bonding agent wasn't ideal back in the day, perhaps the composite wasn't cured in completeness. There's so many factors that can contribute to whether or not you get a propagation of that delamination going all through the tooth. So I guess in answer to your question, I would do this. If I see microleakage that can either be polished or gently um, smoothed down by means of um, either air abrasion or by use of rubber cups, for example, the Shofu One Glosses is a popular one in my hands, um, or composite finishing burrs, and, and, and you see a finish um, that then is not stained or, or, or delaminated, then, then perhaps that's a, a good place to stop. If, however, you see that then propagating, then obviously you've got to go further in and you might end up having to then suggest to the patient that, that you have to remove the whole restoration. The key in the answer to this is really, really and truly communication with your patient. Because the truth of the matter is that you may not know until you're in that, in that zone. <clears throat> and so you have to then uh, make sure the patient has the expectation they're going to have to have that restoration removed and the solution presented to them alongside with the time and the cost and the risks to that patient. And, and, and if it's then ever more uh, limited in terms of what you need to do, then that's only then a bonus. And that's a good way to look like the hero. Brilliant. And we always appreciate these um, communication gems. And that was one right there. So I really appreciate that. And one thing that we did also touch on, obviously, that you mentioned about the cusp capping, which leaves... Very nicely to the next question, which is and something I, I discussed uh, on this uh, on the on the podcast at great length with Chris Orr as well. Is about at what point do you, Andy, want to go from uh, the beautiful direct work that you do to say, actually, you know what, I'm going to now move to indirect lithium disilicate or, or whatever uh, for those big restorations. So, what is it? Because because you're so gifted with these composites. Um, for you to recreate function and anatomy of composite comes easy. At what point do you say, you know what, I'm not going to just cusp cap with composite. I'm actually going to now consider an indirect restoration. What parameters go through your mind in that decision making? Yeah, again, I think the answer to that lies <clears throat> by stepping back and looking at the dynamic and static occlusion by which you're treating. Look at how long that restoration has perhaps been in position uh, in, in place and how, how well that's performed in the time. Um, uh, look at the level of fatigue that's in place there. Look at the opposing dentition. Is there anything that you can do to limit the further fatigue 
of, of a more simple direct restoration by, for example, removing that of a, cl a plunger cusp, for example. Um, uh, little things like that. The next thing that you need to look at is the ratio of the restoration to the tooth. If you're in excess of, a, of about sort of 50 to 60 percent, then I think there is absolute um, legitimacy for going for a semi-direct or an indirect restoration. I say semi-direct because these days we've got more options than ever when you've got things like um, semi-direct composite works or, or pre-cured composites or ceramic hybrids when you're do, dealing with milling uh, and, um, and CAD CAM solutions. So I think that that world has really opened up in terms of using more robust, harder materials that have great ability to protect the tooth moving forwards. So if I was in excess of perhaps 50 or 60% of the, the ratio of the tooth to restoration, and I was dealing with a static and dynamic occlusion that had the potential to worsen um, at a, in a short period of time, I would definitely go for a semi-direct or um, semi-indirect or an indirect. Amazing. I, 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 that's a, such a nice, clear uh, guideline. And I think a lot of people f find these guidelines helpful in their decision-making tree. And again, I appreciate the fact that you're, you're looking at the opposing dentition, uh, the functional risk of the patient and the fatigue that you mentioned as well uh, of the restoration as well. And that's, that's fantastic. And that leads beautifully to our last big theme, which is how do we manage, Andy, these restorations, which are these huge amalgams? Now we're talking maybe, you said 50, 60%. I'm talking about these amalgams that are 80, 90. Okay, let's go for 80. 80% of the tooth, right? So upper lower molar, 80% of the tooth is amalgam. It's been there for a long time, but we can see signs of fracture. We can see some uh, ditching and you want to reduce the, uh, the risk of fracture or catastrophic failure by intervening. The problem is by intervening, you're not going to have much tooth left. And really sometimes you think, okay, am I going to remove the whole restoration and commit this patient to a root canal treatment to then put a cast post in this molar? Are there any other ways around treating this or uh, some things that you, some guidelines that you use for decision-making? Because I have to tell you, Andy, I've shied away many times. I've made a treatment plan for a patient for quadrant, but I, I will just work around that upper first molar. We've got that behemoth amalgam because I don't want to touch it. Any help you can give me? Um, I think the first thing is communication. As we said before, Jazz, um, we've got to look at communication and have our patient on board. We, we, we should not be responsible for owning the clinical problems that a patient presents with. Okay, So it's really essential to every patient that comes our way that we say, look, we are here to assist, we are here to help. Here is the problem at hand. Now, we have a couple of options here, but here are the risks. Um, that's the first thing, because very, very, very quickly it can turn on you. And I, I, I hate to go off topic. I apologize. But I think that that is so, so important to make sure that you as the clinician don't own the problems that the patient possesses. First thing. That is key. I love that. Yeah. The second thing um, is that by removing that restoration, as you say, when it's 80, 90 percent, you run the risk of there being so little tooth that there's not anything to work with. So you are already telling that patient that root treatment is a possibility. And if that is the case, um, how are you going to then restore that tooth with an indirect restoration when there's so little tooth that remains? So th th there are a couple of ways to look at this. And I guess some of the more contemporary core build-up materials, uh, and I'll include composite within that, um, are probably a sensible way to then seal the underlying denting and is as good as anything these days as the research has suggested when properly treated. So again, if we were to then carefully and sympathetically remove the amalgam restoration, that doesn't mean going in with a fast handpiece until you see dentine or worse yet, until you see pink. What I do mean by that is 
perhaps sometimes using ultrasonic hand pieces to then try and blast off uh, bits of the, the terminal part of the uh, apical amalgam, if you like. Um, I also mean using things like air abrasion to then try and remove the, the apical amalgam. Whatever you can do to try and be gentle in your removal of that material is a good way to go. Um, and then because you've used something like um, air abrasion, you're in a good place to then try and hybridize that dentine as well as predictably as possible. Pretty quickly, I'm going to get etch on there um, and leave it on there for no longer than about 10, maximum 15 seconds, and then use a good fourth generation bonding agent like Kerr Optibon 1 and 2FL, which is gold standard. Um, and then and then put a core in place. I'm quite happy to build up a composite core in good nano hybrid composite because that's nice and strong. I know then it's well sealed to the underlying um, pulpal area. And then perhaps you can carry on your, your prep from there. That's all done pretty quickly. Um, you've got to be in a situation where you can engage the, uh, the margins of your restoration. So whether that be by using deflection or retraction cord, um, whether that be sort of some form of um, deep marginal elevation, whether it be some form of crown lengthening, you've got to try and make sure you can get onto sound margins where possible, especially with direct restorations. And I think that um, if you're not, if you can't visualize, if you can't see your margins, then you need to put yourself in a position where you can. And that means either doing one of those things we've just talked about, or then perhaps bouncing it off to someone who can perform some crown lengthening for you or something like that. I, th I think the main t takeaway there in those tough scenarios is all about the communication because the dentistry we can do, we can remove them. And you, you gave some great uh, tips in terms of uh, atraumatically, if you like, removing these amalgams, which is such a, a great thing to consider. Uh, and then proper protocols in bonding under isolation to, to build your core and then considering something indirect from there. But it all, it's all about that conversation in these big amalgam cases. So I really appreciate you um, not digressing, but really putting the, 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 the foundation of that entire topic in its place. Uh, Andy, you've answered all my questions. Uh, I, I really appreciate it so much. So the, the main two things I want to ask now is any final words on this big topic that we covered and where can we learn more from you? Uh, I know you run some courses and I'd love to know about this because I always get flooded. Every time I got a really interesting guest like yourself, people always message me saying, hey, where can I learn more about Andy? So I want to put your stuff on my website, but also where, you know, what kind of, uh, where, which countries do you teach in now? So um, I, I guess the, the, the first thing to say is that um, in terms of trying to then make sure that we adhere to good principles in terms of you know what, what the subject matter we were just talking about. It's really, really important that you train appropriately to get to that point where you can prepare the tooth in the most appropriate fashion. Um, if I can just add one more point really quickly, Jazz, um, is that um, there's a lot of evidence that supports the use um, of something like Reliax Unisem um, as, as, a, as a, almost like a base um, if you've removed that amalgam restoration and then sandblasted. The reason is, is because that self-etch is also your cure. You mustn't let the dual cure um, operate by itself because the exotherm is quite high. So you want to light cure it quite quickly. But then you can bond to that because it's a, it's a self-adhesive. So from that from that perspective, that's a good material to use. And then you can then... So, so like an indirect uh, pulp cap? Yeah, basically. Exactly that. Um, so to your question. Um, yeah, I, I own a, and run a company called Indigo Dent. It's been around for about four or five years now. And what I do um, is, is teaching in composite um, uh, restoration anteriorly and posteriorly. I've been doing composite education, I'm so lucky. Um, for in my, I'm in my 13th year of education now um, with composites. And, and I've seen the layer of the land change hugely. I've seen some wonderful talent um, emerge in the UK, which uh, you know, which is just an amazing thing. I, I, re I really like to see that 
young talent, talent emerge through. Um, so I, I do anterior and posterior courses. Um, I launched a toothwear course about four years ago, which has been, as I've been told, kind of one of a kind in terms of teaching a lot of the course. People have been raving on about that. My, my friend Maria Godfrey, she's always banging on about how awesome that was. I think you do it with uh, Govinda, right? Yeah, um, it's one actually that I'm taking by myself these days. Um, but yeah, we started off doing that. Um, but yeah, it's 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 taken a long time to get the course into what it is now. Um, and we, we, we um, you know, uh, I've teamed up with uh, Ashley Byrne, who's really helped yeah. me on some individual toothwear exercises and things like that. But there's it's a pretty heavy going course. And, and I, I warn every delegate to come well rested because you're not going to be when you come on the course. Um, and there's a lot of theory to yeah. in it and there's a lot of hands on. Um, and, it, and it breaks through a lot of the of, of, of the mystif- de- it demystifies a lot of the stuff that's there and and it makes it work systematically in a, in a workflow that i can understand and i can then put across to to the delegates well please do send me the the, the website and stuff so i can put that on for everyone to check that out i will i will it's it's um i will send you the link it's www.indigodent.com um so and, and then yeah i also offer photography i've done that for the iti and, and such like so that you can actually um uh, get to grips with shade taking, restorations, document your work appropriately and do ethical marketing. Fantastic. Uh, Andy, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I love that fact that you took this uh, seemingly single tooth issue. And I'm so glad you brought these. Uh, I'm so glad I wasn't expecting to talk about uh, uh, constricted envelopes of function, but I'm so glad we did because that's another thing that is is something that we don't really touch on at dental school. But this basic uh, series uh, in August that we're doing, I'm so glad that you touched on it. And the role of this um, episode or role of any podcast is never to uh, give you the complete info this is just 45 minutes so take andy uh, what he's saying as an inspiration to go and read more look up john coyce and the works of john coyce uh, uh there's so much out there that you can learn for free and then even when you consider going to seattle or, or one of um, andy's courses the ne- the learning never stops so thanks so much for sharing that all with us it's, it's worth saying that you know just because we look at the whole dynamic occlusion uh, and the dentition as a whole it doesn't mean we have to treat the whole dentition as a whole you can still remain to be single tooth dentistry without having to treat the whole arch or the, all of the restorations there. So it's just a matter of stepping back and looking at the bigger picture. And, and classifying your patient in terms of risk and, and failure and having those uh, communication, uh, so great conversations with the patients, which you really help with as well. So Andy, thank you so much. And I, I look forward to, to catching you uh, at the dental events, my friend, when they go back up again running again. <laughs> There we have it, guys, the first episode of the Back to Basics series of August uh, with Andrew Chandrapal. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. Hopefully, it didn't get too complex around the whole occlusion uh, and the loss of vertical dimension leading to a constricted envelope. If you didn't understand it, message us. Let me see if we can help you uh, to understand that. Uh, now and again, we're making some helpful infographics. You might have seen that recently. The protrusive team has exp- uh, expanded. We've got uh, Erica, Chriselle helping me out. We've got the producer, John, and myself. So the team's getting bigger. So the announcement really I want to make is that if you signed up to my splint course uh, early on and one of the promotions I had is that, hey, if you sign up by this date, then you'll be part of Protrusive Premium. Well, something really awesome is coming to your inbox very soon. So just give me a few weeks and a really important announcement is coming very soon. But anyway, check out the next episodes. I'm super excited for in two episodes time. um, The episode will be titled Regaining Your Confidence in Extractions. This will probably be the most profound episode I've done to date. So I'm really excited for you to to listen to that one. But anyway, I hope you enjoy the rest of August. As always, I really appreciate you listening and I'll catch you in the next one. (laughs) 